Hello, and welcome to the Metacast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 158th episode of the Metacast titled, titled Setting Sail, an analysis of a storm of swords, Daenerys 1, in which, because you sang last week, I get to sing this week. Danny sailing away, set an open course for the Slaver's Bay. I don't know if that works. Oh, well, it's Beautiful. good enough for Beautiful. government work. Mwah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, can't wait for Danny to just have herself in some, some surf and sun- sunshine in the happiest place on earth. As you can already tell from the name, Slaver's Bay. One of the more, <laughs> one of the more subtle naming conventions by George. Might have just gone with, like, I imagine him on this first map, it's Bad Place. Nah, nah, nah. Cross out X. Slaver's Bay. There you go. Perfect. Much more subtle. Perfect. Much more subtle exactly. than the Bad Place. Much more refined and mature. Mm-hmm. Truly, <laughs> indeed. Plus, got that. Yeah. Yeah. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Sack, Grand Master Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Jume, Hero of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Rib Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Mash the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king. Lady Zena Valyrian. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince. Regular Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly, one of the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Sorcedelica. Sugar Tits Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer Alex Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Share and Bastard of Chromatica, Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Thades and Gentle Thems, and the Nauticast Non-Binary Not an Army. Hall of Earthway for T-Well, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the First of Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Arp, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devity, the Great Game of Thrones, Portrait of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Bunner Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion, the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Fates, Lesbians, Sir Josh No, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shipper Reborn, Pre- of the poor fellows, Marshall Harrison absent shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Tavern King and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo democratic system of great councils where in every count votes, Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, and Prince Rager Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat Armour with the Blood Broil and Guarding the Bone Way. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt as future Matt as the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth. Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard. Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms. Lady Starfall, Wardness of the South and patron freewheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer of the valiant pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. Lord 
Lord, Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Ward, the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Sir Kell, Contractor in Charge of Continually Extending the Small Council Table, Lord Travis, Mentat, Master of Ships, and Third Stage Guild Navigator, Lord Anonymous, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince who promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, a former High Lady who is now known as Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Unrepentant Shipper, Lord Mansef, and the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Thank you to all of our small council patrons. Thank you, counselors, as always. And I, I love that we're ending now with the prince rotting on the council walls. Just a, a wonderful image, especially going into a Danny chapter. So it's, it's just perfect. No one else is allowed to join our small council. <laughs> or if they do, we'll just keep moving. We'll keep moving the Targaryen <laughs> prince down to just still be going. the bottom below any new ones. We'll al- always end with the severed head. We'll see. We'll see about that. I mean, on Twitter the other day, someone was asking, like, my top five or my favorite um, small council names that I get to announce. And I just, my favorite one is, is Veneris of House Kulgarian because I think she yes. did a really good job Vanessa's putting her name best. together. Uh, but mm-hmm. the severed head of a Targaryen prince riding on the council walls is, is, a, is a second, a very easy second for me. Now, all of our small council patrons are awesome, of course, and your names are of all course. awesome, as always. But yes, indeed. <laughs> Where the fuck was I going with that? Our spoiler warning, as you say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Windswinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Monsef, a small council patron, who asks, Hi guys, I love your podcast, I love hearing Emmett speak, and I love it when Jeff goes into father mode. Drugs are bad, I'm right, you're wrong. It's true, we all love that. <laughs> I have a question for each of you. Emmett, do you know Rick and Morty? What do you think? Do you think the relationship between Tyrion and Penny could have parallels with the latter? Jeff, I noticed that the main character of The Cautioner's Tale has similarities with Tyrion and Jamie. I'm curious about the kind of emotion you're trying to capture with the story you're writing. I love tornadoes. So I'm just, I'll just uh, go with mine uh, real quick first. And yes, shamefully, I watch Rick and Morty. Uh, it's one of those, one of those um, shows that has attracted at a really obnoxious fan base and the people who love it the most tend to talk about it really annoyingly. So it's not the kind of thing you want to associate yourself with. And I do think the writing has somewhat gone downhill, but it's still, I still have a blast watching it because I just, I just like the characters and the concepts and I like how unpredictable it is. So it's a hoot for me, even if um, it's the kind of thing, you know, like, uh, like how everyone brings up Fight Club as the ultimate dude bro movie. And it's like, you know, half of me is like, well, but Fight Club is actually the antithesis of that if you actually watch it. And the other half of me is like, well, I don't want to hang out with a bunch of guys who think Fight Club is, you know. So there's, there's, it's one of those things. But um, as for Tyrion and Penny compared to Rick and Morty, that's, that's an interesting comparison. There is, I think, I think the same mix of like uh, cynical character versus somewhat naive character. And the somewhat naive hmm. character pointing out how the cynical character has kind of ruined their own life. So I think there is something to that. Um, the the uh, Rick and Morty to Ace Wolf comparison I always thought was good was uh, there's Marwin the mage who pops up for one chapter. He feels like the Rick equivalent to me in that he's he's brilliant but clearly untrustworthy and kind of <laughs> out of his mind. So like if, if Podrick Payne, if young, naive, innocent Podrick Payne, if instead of teaming up with Brienne, he had to follow Marwin the mage all around the world, <laughs> that's kind of that's what I imagine Rick and Morty would be like in, in the Ace Wolf universe. I like it. I've, I've never seen Rick and Morty, so... Should yeah, I watch it? For it? Should I watch it? Should I? I don't know. There, there are some some of the episodes of Rick and Morty that I I love to pieces and will rewatch over and over again. But there are, you know, there are moments like with Game of Thrones where the sense of humor is a little haha balls and like you know uh-huh. that uh that can get a little repetitive over time. But I I, I do recommend. It's fun to watch. You know, as uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it. Recommend it. You know, sober on an analytic mindset. 
Oh, but uh, as a background fun show. So, of course, exactly. It's one <laughs> take. So, um, but no, yeah, no, it's it's still fun. I mean, I, I like Dan Harmon as, as a writer. Um, maybe yeah. not as a, as a person, but as, as a writer, I think sure. he's a... Sure. He's probably one of the the top people, at least in the in the comedy field in, in in Hollywood these days. But I don't. Yeah, maybe we will give it a shot. We will we, we will see. I think it's uh, yeah, something I will I will definitely uh, potentially endeavor to do one of these days. Maybe. Wow, that was that For qualified that about three times. Yeah, yeah, exactly, qualified three exactly. times. Lots never gonna fucking happen. Yeah. So what about uh, what about Lord Monsef's question to you? He was Jeff. I noticed the main character of the Cautioner's Tale has similarities with Tyrion and Jamie. I'm curious about the kind of emotion you're trying to capture with the story you're writing. Um, the the character, the main character of the, of the Cautioner's Tale, was not written with Tyrion and Jamie in mind. In fact, the the creation of the character happened before I'd ever read A Song of Ice and Fire, which I still haven't because I can't read because I'm illiterate. But the the point the, the point being um, that a lot of this this character was based on some of some of my own experiences that I, that I was having uh, in, the, in the wake of of, of uh, being deployed overseas and coming back home, um, but a lot of it also too, like the, the was was trying to capture this this kind of emotion of several folds. So one, it's this angle mm-hmm. of what does it mean to come home from from war? Like I think I think a lot of people come back from war, I and mean, when if they write end up writing something, they tend to write about what the war was like what their experiences were but what i wanted to capture in my story was like what it's like to come home from that experience that few people have had and you try and get reintegrated back into society and it really just doesn't doesn't work out but the greater part of it too was like how how institutions work to kind of make make the rot of of living in in, in the modern world a lot worse so, I mean, the character in the story is like shows up in the story, kind of medias res, um, after you get to the prologue. And he's like this really down, sad, cynical, misogynistic, sexist, racist, if you can read that between the lines, character who's just really kind of just kind of like rotting from the inside. And you you go into the story, what I think, thinking that like, ah, oh, this is what happens like when someone goes to war, right? When someone comes out of a, a war experience you're just gonna be like they're so fucked up that it's it's uh that, that they're not be able to reintegrate actively into into society and what I wanted to show in, the, in in the story was like no I think like you can have those kind of experiences where in in warfare where it, you can get like broken you can have PTSD and you can have all of these different um, these different psychological problems that you come out of the the story out of, out of the out of that experience with but I wanted to show is how it, it actually more like kind of display like kind of like displays some of the some of the rot in in in, in modern society mm-hmm. specifically if if that makes sense it like kind of illuminates it and makes it worse as opposed to actually like creates it I don't know if that's 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 a way and I was trying to relate that to some of my experiences from like the early two thousands and kind of like bro gamer you know f- you know frat boy culture which I was kind of tertiarily involved in back in the day. Um, but but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm trying I'm I'm fail, fucking failing, and I really shouldn't be fucking failing at trying to explain my, my own book. Uh, but no, Tyrion no, and Jamie are not the inspirations, but there are similarities. I, I agree. Uh, but but is uh, is actually uh, for for Monsef, it's it's hurricanes. If if you love tornadoes, that you want to, you should be loving hurricanes for the story. And I'll just leave it at mm-hmm. that. I I mean, oh, I think you nailed it. And I think what something I I loved about 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 the cautioner's tale and something I really 
I think is missing from a lot of stories like that is the sense, you know, we have that the, the framework of the story of the damaged soldier who can't fit back into society. And what right. that kind of story kind of presupposes is that society is a good thing right. to which you would want to belong. And what if that's not really the case? And as you say, what if the, the contrast highlights that for you? And I yeah. think I think that's that's wonderful. I do. I think they're that kind of uh, kind of more cynical distance. I think you can see in characters like Tyrion and Jaime, mm-hmm. but I think they just uh, they come at it from a very different uh, different social perspective. Because um, I mean, Jaime's a veteran, but um, <laughs> hashtag veteran. I don't, hashtag veteran. I don't know. I guess I just don't first and foremost think about Jaime that way because the Same. Kingslang wasn't a battle, and that's kind of his primal scene. And like the battles that Jamie have been in, you know, they're they're there, but they just they uh, they're not the huge moments for me. But um, but uh, well, maybe I have to I have to reconsider that. But um, no, that's it's a good point. I mean, Tyrion's also a veteran as well. I mean, Blackwater, you know, you're right. The Green Force. What's wrong with me? They're both veterans. I just I in, <laughs> I'm 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 falling into the same trap I just set for myself, where I have a pre-existing image of the veteran in my head. Right. Um. Well, no, really, you know, he's seen combat. He counts. You're right. But it'd be yeah, yeah. I mean, like that's the 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 angle is for the. For, for that George likes to do with these these veteran characters, Barristan, Tyrion, Jamie, Eddard. I mean, he he, he, t- he approaches it from different angles, right? I mean, for Jamie, it's like, ah, I was the Kingswood Brotherhood was this time where I was just having so much fun. I was hanging out with Arthur Dane, killing villains, that sort of stuff. And like his actual like war fighting is what in in the War of the Five Kings. We don't really get his perspective beyond that he's kind of embarrassed that he got beaten by Rob Stark at the. And the War of the Five Kings, and kind of has a grudging respect. If you can read that into some of Jamie's chapters in A Storm of Swords, mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah. So I mean, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I I think like I can probably when you ask about like similarities with characters. I mean, obviously, I started writing the story. I got an obviously started writing the story in, in two thousand nine before I had read A Song of Ice and Fire. But you know, I've rewritten it. God, I don't know how many times at this point, or edited and rewritten it after I was had read A Song of Ice and Fire. And there are, by osmosis, you can see that some things have probably filtered into the story as, as time has progressed. And I think I've become a little bit of a better writer um, as time has progressed as well, because I fucking sucked. When I first started, God, don't, don't ever make me look at those drafts ever again. So, <laughs> Hey, writing is rewriting. That's true for everybody. Uh-huh. True indeed, so, as George knows well. Yes, right. No one knows that better than George R. R. Martin. So uh, thank you so much to Lord Monsef for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Nauticast. <laughs> we invite you to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can also get show notes, a shirt designed by our friend Mallory, a.k.a. San Rixian, one of the great uh, Song of Ice and Fire artists, access to the Nauticast, and bonus episodes like... Our recent analysis of the 2008 movie Waltz with Bashir, talking about veterans. That's a that's a movie all about it. Mm. And we are excited to announce that next month, this uh, this coming month here in October, our next Patreon only episode will be a full analysis of David Lynch's 1984 classic classic movie Dune. <laughs> just in, just in time for the new one, which will of course fail to live up to the the unquestioned majesty of David Lynch's vision. I am excited for that. And if I'm not mistaken, David Lynch believes that this film is to be his masterpiece, right? Oh, yeah, sure. He's, he loves Dune. He, he'll always talk about Dune. It's like physically painful, the look on his face when someone asks David. It's like David Fincher did the Alien 3. Yes. And has like disavowed it completely and has this look on his face if anyone asks him about it. Same thing. And that's, that's part of the fun of Dune is how much David Lynch didn't want to do it. So we'll have a, we'll have a lot of fun with that. 
so I've never actually seen the 1984 version of, Again, you're of Dune. So, <laughs> well, I'm going to be watching it here the next uh, next couple of, uh, of weeks. So that's for the first time, I'm going to sit down and, and watch that movie. But uh, yeah, but I, but I do know that David Lynch had said what? That someone asked him like, hey, I really love Dune. He's like, oh, I hate that fucking piece of shit or whatever. So he said something <laughs> like that somewhat recently, if I'm not mistaken. But uh so I guess it'll be an experience for me. Um, but I did actually read the book for the first time about a year ago. So yeah, that's, I'm looking forward to that patron episode. And maybe, when does, the, when does the movie come out exactly? Is it the end of this month or is it... Uh, like... I think it's the 22nd. So okay. like uh, two, maybe, uh, two weeks from the end of this week. Maybe we record... I mean, it'll, we can we can talk about it off, off air. Sure. But uh, maybe we record it after we see like the movie in, in theaters. So then we can uh, at least have like a blurb That's at true. the end. Yeah, talking about That's comparing true. the two. Maybe. We'll discuss things. Discuss things. Away from, away from the, the watching yeah. eyes. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I'm, I'm the worst. I don't even, do, I, do I even have a part of this? Do, am I even a podcaster? I don't even know at this point. Oh, shush. I was just teasing the crowd. They don't get to know things. They don't, yeah, they don't get to know shit unless you're a small council <laughs> patron or a high lord or lady because you guys get to mm-hmm. all of our, like at the end, our musings about Samo 1, which we did for our, uh, our mini-sode that we just recorded before we came on air here. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Daenerys Targaryen, she had birthed dragons, walked across the desert way, stopped by the House of the Undying, and nothing else happened because she never went to Karth, in my imagination. Let's catch up with Daenerys in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 1. Across the still blue water came the slow, steady beat of drums and the soft swish of oars from the galley. The great cog groaned in their wake, the heavy lines stretched taut between. Balerion's black sails hung limp, drooping forlorn from the mass. Yet even so, as she stood upon the forecastle, watching her dragons chase each other across a cloudless blue sky, Daenerys Targaryen was as happy as she could ever remember being. By God, George R. R. Martin can open in a Storm of Swords chapter on a happy note? It can be done. Someone is happy? Is this a song of ice and fire? Yeah, it is. The Dothraki don't like the ocean. They call it the poison water as their horses couldn't drink it. They think they're all sailing into a hell rather than Pentos. Accurate. Meanwhile, the handmaids Eerie and Jiqui get seasick and the rest of the Kalasar hides below deck with their horses. A sea squall previously had sent the horses screaming and the Dothraki praying. But Danny wasn't scared. She was born amidst a storm on Dragonstone. She is stormborn after all, and the narrow sea was familiar to her as she crossed it quote-unquote half a hundred times while running with Viserys to the different free cities. And she loves the sea, the salty smell, the dolphins swimming next to the ship Balerion, the sailors and their stories. She wanted to be a sailor until Viserys abused her and told her that she was the blood of the dragon, not some smelly fish. He was a fool about that and so much else, Danny thought. If he had been wiser and more patient, it would be him sailing west to take the throne that was his by rights. Viserys had been stupid and vicious, she had come to realize, yet sometimes she missed him all the same. N- not the cruel weak man he had become by the end, but the brother who had sometimes let her creep into his bed, the boy who told her tales of the, seven, of the seven kingdoms and talked of how much better their lives would be once he claimed his crown. At that moment, Captain Grolio appears, telling Danny that he wishes Balerion was a dragon and could soar because they're rowing rather than sailing. They need some wind, in other words. Danny likes Grolio, or is impressed that she impressed him and won him over to a, by allowing her dragons to roam free rather than be caged. And Grolio had enjoyed that the dragons had made that rat problem go away. Now everyone was calling the dragons their dragons. So much fun. 
They are my children, Danny told herself, and if the Meiji spoke truly, they are the only children I am like to ever have. Viserion's scales were the color of fresh cream, his horns, wing bones, and spinal crest a dark gold that flashed bright as metal in the sun. Rhaegal was made of the green of summer and the bronze of fall. They soared above the ships in wide circles, higher and higher, each trying to climb above the other. I just, I mean, just, it just struck me just that George's descriptions of visualizing things is just really, really, really good. Especially Rhaegal being the green of summer and the bronze of fall. That's, that's brilliantly said. And the dragons liked attacking from above, dive-bombing into each other for fun. But not Drogon. You see... Drogon was a little different. He was a lonely hunter and always hungry. That dragon was growing fast. Soon, Drogon would be large enough to ride, but not yet. The dragons were still small, and so Danny was riding a ship. To Westeros, maybe. The ship was nice, but the wind hadn't moved in six days and nights, and the three ships were rowing slowly through the water. At that moment, Sir Lester, er, <laughs> Sir Jorah appears and comments that Drogon is lost. No, you dumb fuck. It's not Drogon who's lost. It's us, Danny corrects. I mean, she doesn't use the profanity, but that's my interpretation of it. Anyways, how big will the dragons grow? In the Seven Kingdoms, there are tales of dragons who grew so huge that they could pluck giant krakens from the seas. Danny laughed. That would be a wondrous sight to see. It is only a tale, Khaleesi, said her exile knight. They talk of wise old dragons living a thousand years as well. <sighs> Thanks for that, Sir Grump of House Buzzkill. Like, seriously, Barrison is about to be the life of the fucking party compared to your Sasquatch-looking ass? Danny then asks how long the dragons will live, and Jorah says dragons live several times longer than men, according to the songs. But the dragons Westeros knows are the war dragons, and those dragons died a lot in war. Not easy, but it can be done. In swoops Sir Barristan, I mean, Sir Arston Whitebeard, a squire, very much a squire, who tells Danny about Valerian the Black Dread dying at the age of 200 during Jaehaerys the First reign. And did you know, Danny, that dragons don't stop growing so large so long as they have freedom? Danny asks what B. Arston means, and he says that the Targaryens put together an immense dome structure, structure called the Dragon Pit to house the royal, the royal dragons. But encased in the structure, those dragons never grew to the size of the old dragons. According to the Baesters, it was the walls and dome that kept the dragons small. If the dragons could keep us small, peasants would be all tiny and kings as large as giants, said Sir Jor. I've seen huge men born in hovels and dwarves who, went, who dwelt in castles. Men are men, Whitebeard replied. Dragons are dragons. Sir Jorah snorted in disdain. How profound. The exile knight had no love for the old man. He made that plain from the first. What do you know of dragons anyways? Well, Arston doesn't know much about dragons, but he was in King's Landing, and he was in the throne room and saw the dragon skulls looking down. Weird, Arston. What was a squire doing just having all this time to walk around the throne room and observe the dragon skulls? Really interesting. Anyways, Danny comments that Viserys talked about the skulls and how Robert had put the skulls away. Did Barry Arston beat her dad? He had that honor. Again, so strange that a squire would be meeting the king of Westeros? So it's just not adding up. I don't know who this guy is. Was Aerys a proper gentleman, Danny asked next. Uh, yeah, um, he was pleasant many oftentimes, but not always, Danny asked. No, he could be a real sick motherfucker when it comes to his enemies. A wise man never makes an enemy of a king, said Danny. 
Did you know my brother Rhaegar as well? Oh, it was said that no man ever truly knew Prince Rhaegar truly. I had the privilege of seeing him in Turney, though, and often heard him play his harp with its silver strings. Sir Jorah snorted, along with a thousand others at some harvest feast. Next you'll claim you squired for him. Barney Stan was very much not Rhaegar's squire. That was Miles Mooton and Richard Lonmoth. Rhaegar knighted them. Some random bro who's unimportant named John Connington was friends with Rhaegar too. But Rhaegar's real true friend, his best friend, his BFF, was Sir Arthur Dane. Danny knows the name of Sir Arthur Dane and recalls Viserys talking about him as the sword of the morning with his white blade and how he was the only knight as good as Rhaegar. Arston, very much not remembering this other fellow by the name of, oh, what was his name again? The guy who killed Maelys the Monstrous, says he would not dare question Prince Viserys' judgment. No, no, Danny corrects. He wasn't a prince. Viserys was king. That is law. Many echoes of Stannis here. Anyways, Jorah the slave bear Andal once said that Rhaegar was the last dragon. That means he was a kick-ass warrior who fucks shit up, right? Um, yeah. Arston, Arston, says he was a big, strong warrior bro, but, um, uh, go on, Danny urged. You may speak freely to me. As you command. The old man leaned upon his hardwood staff, his bow, his brow furrowed. A worry without peer. Those are fine words, your grace, but words win no battles. Swords win battles, Sir Jorah said bluntly, and Prince Rhaegar knew how to use one. Oh, he did, sir, but but I have seen a hundred tournaments and more wars than I would wish, and however strong or fast or skilled a knight may be, there are others who can match him. A man will win one tourney and fall quickly in the next. A slick spot on the grass may mean defeat, or, or what you ate for supper the night before. A change in the wind may bring the gift of victory. Arston glanced at Sir Jorah. Or a lady's favor nodded around an arm. <laughs> Get fucked, Jorah. Jorah gets angry at this, and Danny remembers the sad, very so sad and tragic backstory of Sir Jorah losing Lady Linus of House Hightower. And she says Arston totally didn't mean any harm, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Anyways, now that that's cleared up, how about Arston the Squire? The Squire talk a bit more about Rhaegar. What was he actually like? And, and I love this part of the chapter, so I'll read a little bit in full here. The old man considered a moment. Able, that above all, determined, deliberate, dutiful, single-minded. There, there, there was a tale told of him, but, but doubtless Sir Jorah knows it as well. I would hear from you, Danny said. As you wish, said Whitebeard. As a young boy, the Prince of Dragonstone was, was bookish to a fault. He was reading so early that men said Queen Riella must have swallowed some books and a candle whilst in her womb. Rhaegar took no interest in the play of other children. The, the maesters were awed by his wits, but his father's knights were just sourly that Baylor the Blessed had been born again. Until one day, Prince Rhaegar found something in his scrolls that changed him. No one knows what it might have been. Only that the boy suddenly appeared early one morning in the yards as the knights were donning their steel. He walked up to Sir Willem Derry, the, the master of arms, and said, I will require sword and armor, it seems. I, I must be a warrior. And he was, said Danny, delighted. He was indeed. Whitebeard bowed. My pardons, your grace. We speak of warriors, and I see that Strong Bellwells has arisen. I must attend him. 
I may not be the biggest fan of Rhaegar in this fandom, but this makes me feel the romance that George wants to embed into the character of Rhaegar Targaryen. Anyways, Belwas is up and he is hungry. Arston, go get some goddamn food for Belwas. Danny dismisses Arston and Jorah tells Danny that Arston is a liar and not to listen to him all that closely. To that, Danny replies that she has to listen to everyone, high and low, strong and weak, noble and venal. People might lie, but there may be truth in lies. She had read that in a book somewhere. Fine, the once and future slaver says, but Arston is lying. He's way too old to be a squire and speaks too goodly to serve Belwas. Danny agrees, thinking that is a bit weird, especially since Belwas was a pit fighter from the fighting pits of Marine. Belwas was sent to be her guard by Illyrio, and she did need protection from the Usurper, or from the Warlocks, or all those Tothraki who want her dead. A lot of fucking people want her dead. And maybe Zaro is her enemy now as well? Danny hopes not. And Jorah had saved her? <laughs> saved her? From the Poisoner, and Arston had saved her from the Manicor. Maybe Belwas will save her next. And look, we have not really talked about Belwas too much, so we're going to have to describe this guy. And George does that right here. He was huge enough with arms like small trees and a great curved arax so sharp he might have shaved with it. In the unlikely event of hair sprouting on those smooth brown cheeks. Yet he was childlike as well. As a protector, he leaves much to be desired. Thankfully, Daener I have Sir Jorah and my blood riders, and my dragons never forget. In time, the dragons would be her most formidable guardians, just as they had been for Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters 300 years ago. Just now, though, they had brought her more danger than protection. In all the world, there were but three living dragons, and those were hers. They were a wonder, and a terror, and beyond price. As she thinks about what to say next, Danny feels the wind picking up, and the sailors start shouting at the wind. Rolio runs around, also shouting, this time commands, and Belwas does a little dance, which I had totally forgotten about Belwas doing a little dance on the ship there. Yeah, just that mental image is just uh, just sending me. Danny shouts that they're sailing, but Sir Grump Bear wants to know where they're sailing or what they're sailing towards. All day, the wind blew steady from the east at first, and then in wild gusts, the sun set in a blaze of red. I am still half a world from Westeros, Danny reminded herself, but every hour brings me closer. She tried to imagine what it would feel like when, her first, when she first caught sight of the land she was born to rule. It will be as fair a shore as I have ever seen. I know it. How could it be otherwise? We'll see about all that eventually when Danny approaches Westeros next week or the next in The Winds of Winter. The ships move as Danny hangs out in the captain's cabin. Grolio's cabin, Grolio, that is, Grolio's cabin, until he told her that queens take the best rooms even on ships. And then a knock comes. In comes Sir Jormamon, bringing all the cheer of a Cormac McCarthy novel with him. He's sorry to have to wake Danny, but he needs to talk to her. Oh, I was not sleeping, sir. Come and watch. Danny took a chunk of salt pork out of her bowl in her lap and held it up for her dragons to see. All three of them eyed it hungrily. Rhaegal spread green wings and stirred the air, and Viserion's neck swayed back and forth like a long, pale snake as he followed the movement of her hand. Drogon, Danny said softly. Dracarys and she tossed the pork in the air. Drogon moved quicker than a striking cobra. Flame roared from his mouth, orange and scarlet and black, searing the meat before it and began to fall. As his sharp black teeth snapped shut around it, Rhaegal's head darted close as if to steal the prize from her brother's jaws. But Drogon swallowed and screamed, and the smaller green dragon could only hiss in frustration. 
Danny chides Rhaegal for being mean and greedy, but Danny is proud of teaching her dragons how to use dragon fire. Oh, that word, Dracarys says. That, that word, Dracarys, Jorah says. And the dragons belch fire at Jorah. And sadly, so sadly, Jorah doesn't catch on fire and or melt in this moment as he backs away just in time. Danny laughs and tells Jorah to be careful with that word. It means dragon fire in High Valyrian. Good, great, who the fuck cares? Jorah needs to talk with Danny. So Danny dismisses her handmaid, Eerie. When she's gone, Danny asks what's bothering Jorah. Strong Belwas, Arston Whitebeard, and Alero Mopatis. Why? Because Danny would be betrayed three times for blood, gold, and love. Miri Mazdor was obviously the first, very obviously, so the remaining two traitors are very definitely Barristan and Belwas. Does Jorah remind Danny that even if Robert is dead, his son? Does Jorah need to remind Danny that even if Robert is dead, his son sits the Iron Throne and will pay his father's debts? This boy, Joffrey, might want me dead if he recalls that I'm alive, Danny said. What has this to do with Belwas and Arston Whitebeard? The old man does not even wear a sword. You've seen that. Aye, and I've seen how deftly he handles that staff of his. Recall how we killed that manticorn Karth? It might have been easily your throat he crushed. Might have been, but was not, Danny pointed out. It was a stinging manticore meant to slay me. He saved my life. Khaleesi. Has it occurred to you that Art Whitebeard and Belwas might have been in league with the assassin? It might have all been a ploy to win your trust. Her sudden laughter made Drogon hiss and sent Viserion flapping to his perch above the porthole. The ploy worked well. Sir Grump Knight doesn't smile and says it's all Illyrio. His ships, his captains, his sailors, and those two guys are his. But Illyrio protected Danny before Danny counters. He even wept when he heard Viserys died. But was he weeping for Viserys or for his plans he had with Viserys, Jorah asks. And damn, but I have to roll out the heartbreaking. The worst person you know just made a really great point headline all over again for Sir Jorah, who I hate. To Danny, though, Illyrio is a friend and his plans don't need to change. Plus, he's rich as fuck. True, but he was born a poor kid and people don't get rich through being kind. Fact check true. What does Illyrio love more than gold? And hey, wasn't that one of your prophesied betrayals for gold? Well, <laughs> maybe, but Illyrio loves being alive more than his gold. Danny had burned Miri Mazdor for betraying her. Yeah, but that was when Miri Mazdor was a prisoner. In Pentos, Illyrio will have all the power, and he's clever. I need clever men about me if I am to win the Iron Throne, Sir Jorah snorted. <laughs> That wine cellar tried to poison you was a clever man as well. Clever men hatch ambitious schemes. Danny drew her legs up beneath the blanket. You will protect me. You and my blood riders. Well, that's fucking nonsense to Jorah. It's like four dudes. And how trustworthy are Illyrio's men again? Maybe they're all just like Piat Pri and Zarozo and Doxus. Danny realizes that Jorah means, well... <laughs> Fact check on that one, he fucking doesn't. But she cautions that she can't distrust everyone just as she can't trust everyone either. She has to conquer Westeros with more than four dudes. True, but if Danny keeps on trusting everyone, she'll end up like Rhaegar and Viserys before her. This kind of pisses Danny off. She knows she's being treated like a child by Dora. She says that Belwas isn't a schemer and Arston didn't lie to her. He's not what he says again. He's not what he says he is, Dora responds. But he knew Rhaegar. So did a lot of people. Your grace, in Westeros, the lord commander of the king's guard sits on the small council and serves the king with his wits as well as his steel. If I am to be the first of your king's queen's guard, I pray you hear me out. I have a plan to put to you. 
What plan? Danny asked. Tell me. Illyrio Mopetsis wants you back in Pentos. Under his roof. Very well. Go to him. But in your own time, and not alone. Let us see how loyal and obedient these new subjects of yours truly are. Command Grillo to change course for Slaver's Bay. Oh, Danny does not like the sound of that plan, thinking that Yunkai, Marine, and Astapor were where bad shit happens. What's in Slaver's Bay for Danny? she asks. An army. She should go to Astapor and buy Unsullied. Uh, why? They are all palace guards, infantry, and obese? Well, those ones that Danny might have seen before, sure, but that ain't the full story. As Danny heard the story of the 3,000 of Kohor. No. The coverlet slipped off Danny's shoulder and she tugged it back into place. By the way, the coverlet has been slipping on and off throughout this conversation. I've kind of skipped over that part of this chapter. This is important for reasons that we'll unpack by chapter's end. Anyways, Jorah launches into a full story of the 3000 of Kohor. It's a long story. It's great backstory, but this synopsis is already so fucking long. So to summarize, as you guys probably all know, the Dothraki attacked Kohor, the Kohoric hired sellswords, and the Unsullied. The sellswords fled or were massacred, and the Kohoric got their asses kicked. The next day, the Unsullied showed up and formed up outside of the gates. The Dothraki thought the Unsullied were shit for being infantry, which is classic cav nonsense fuck them and they charged against them over and over again and the dothraki ended up getting their asses kicked losing twelve thousand dudes including Caltemo, his blood riders and their sons the surviving dothraki cut off their braids and threw it at the feet of the 600 surviving unsullied since that day the city guard of cohort has been made up solely of unsullied every one of whom carries a tall spear from which hangs a braid of human hair that is what you will find in astapor your grace Put ashore there, and continue on to Pentos overland. It will take longer, yes, but when you break bread with Magister Illyrio, you will have a thousand swords behind you, not just four. Danny starts to get excited, thinking that this is a wide co wise course, but she doesn't have much in the way of what you'd call money. How is she going to buy and sell it? Well, uh, show them your dragon. I mean, show them your dragons, Jorah says, and sell Illyrio shit or trade it for Unsullied. When Danny counters that it's, uh, again, Illyrio shit, not her shit, Jorah says, yeah, and if he's a true friend like Danny thinks that Illyrio is, he'll give it up and not give a shit. Daenerys starts to then get really excited, but Jorah says there are dangers on sea or land, and it's possible that Grolio might not obey Danny's command, but she should figure that out for herself. Yes, she decided. I'll do it. Danny threw back the coverlets and hopped from the bunk. I'll see the captain at once. Command him to set course for Astapor. She bent over her chest, threw open the lid, and seized the first garment to hand a pair of loose sand silk trousers. Hand me my medallion belt, she commanded. She commanded Jorah as she pulled the sand silk up over her lips. And my vest, she started to say, turning. Sir Jorah slid his arms around her. Oh, fuck. Oh, was all Danny had time to say as he pulled her close and pressed his lips down on hers. He smelled of sweat and salt and leather, and the iron studs on his jerkin dug into her naked breast as she crushed her hand against him. One hand held her by the shoulder while the other slid down her spine to the small of her back, and her mouth opened for his tongue, though she, though she never told it to. His beard was scratchy, she thought, but his mouth is sweet. The Dothraki wore no beards, only long mustaches, and only Caldrogo had ever kissed her before. He, he, he should not be doing this. I, I am his queen, and not his woman. Fucking goddammit, Jorah. She's 14! 
14, you absolute motherfucking creep. Jorah gives the, uh, again, I have to emphasize this, 14, 14-year-old 14 Daenerys a long, creepy kiss, and Danny starts to say that Jorah should not have done that. But before she can finish the thought, Jorah says he shouldn't have waited so long. He should have kissed her through the red wastes and vase to Loro and that fucking place called Karth everywhere. He wants to creep kiss Danny all the time, and I fucking hate this. I mean, it's good writing, but I just hate Jorah Mormont so much. Danny covers herself up and tells Jorah that, that that wasn't fitting. She's his queen. And yes, she's brave and sweet and beautiful, as Jorah says. And Jorah starts to, starts to call Dan, Daenerys Danny until Danny corrects him. No, motherfucker, your grace. Your grace, he correct, conceded. The, the dragon has three heads, remember? You have wondered at that ever since you heard it from the warlocks in the House of Dust. Well, here's your meeting. Valerian. Araxes and Vega are ridden by Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya, the three heads of the three-headed dragon of House Targaryen, three dragons and three riders. Yes, said Danny, but but my brothers are dead. Rhaenys and Visenya were Aegon's wives as well as his sisters. You have no brothers, but you can take husbands. And I tell you truly, Daenerys, there is no man in all the world who will be half so true, who will be half so true to you as me. God, I hate that motherfucker so bad. Save me, Emmett, from him. If only the dragons got him on that ship. But that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys 1. You know, putting Jorah aside and the fact that I hate him, did that come across in the synopsis? It may have or may not have. It really kind of feels like uh, George made a significant course correction for Daenerys Targaryen since A Clash of Kings as he's writing A Storm of Swords. It kind of feels that way, doesn't it, Emmett? Yeah, so we weren't the biggest fans of Danny's chapters in Clash. They had some beautiful imagery, especially in the House of the Undying, but they were lacking in the plot and character departments. Not so in Storm of Swords, in which her chapters are keyed into her choices and the ripple effects they have on the world around her. It's a lot like Davos's story in this book. George starts by stripping it all down in this chapter, exiling Danny at sea, like Davos on his rock, so he can remind us who she is underneath all the imagery, what she wants. From here, it's a perfectly structured crescendo. Freeing slaves, conquering cities, it just builds and builds and builds. It becomes one of the most viscerally exciting parts of the series. But before you can knock dominoes down, you have to set them all up in a row. And that's this chapter's job. Well said. And Daenerys Targaryen, I think you'd be surprised if you were just coming into this book for the first time, having maybe watched the throne show. But Daenerys Targaryen has a total of six chapters in A Storm of Swords. Six. It doesn't feel like it's six chapters, does it? Because so much happens in every chapter that you'd be forgiven for not thinking that there were 10 Danny chapters in Storm. But again, six. It's only six chapters. And here I think George demonstrates that he can tell one of the most exciting storylines in any book of A Song of Ice and Fire with a conservation of page space and a limited number of chapters. How does he accomplish this? Well, I think Danny one starts to show the method of his madness. Through Danny 1, we get the backstory on the dragons and Rhaegar setting up Danny's future role as a dragon rider and heir to Rhaegar, like we talked about in some of our Thrones show episodes back in the day for Season 8. We also get the backstory on the Unsullied and how ferocious they'll be in the wars to come. Then there's Illyrio, his machinations, and setups for future plot payoffs we haven't even seen yet in the published books. Finally, the move to Astapor itself. These are all encompassed in one chapter, all of the you know, the groundwork for laying 
that George does here is one chapter so that George can swiftly, efficiently, and excitedly progress through five more Danny chapters without taking a breath. It's going to end up moving so quickly, but Danny's story in the book starts with her going nowhere fast. The wind at her back driving her on to destiny has vanished. Two of their ships are trading galleys, and they can be rowed by oarsmen, but the third ship is a gigantic cog that they have to tow behind them. It's a perfect way to start, fitting into the structure of Danny's arc. Even as she sets sail for Westeros, part of her is being held back. It hints at her decision to sail for Slaver's Bay instead, and her parallel decision at the end of the book to remain in Slaver's Bay. But this opening also represents Danny's relationship to her family, and to the home she thinks is waiting for her in Westeros. All of that is baggage. It's a big, impressive ship that can't function without momentum. It's a shark that needs to keep eating or it'll die. <laughs> After all, Danny renamed these ships in honor of the dragons her ancestor Egon and his sisters used to conquer Westeros. Balerion the Black Dread took full advantage of his size, but the ship named for him is too big. It's slowing down Danny's attempt to retake Aegon's kingdom. And yet, Danny thinks that she is as happy as she's ever been. I think it's because she's getting a break from politics and prophecies. What makes Danny's story an effective tragedy is she's trying so hard to be happy, but the things that are supposed to make her happy don't. We'll see that at the end of the book, when she thinks that all her victories are slipping between her fingers and transforming into horrors. Danny is happiest here, in between, not leaving anywhere, not arriving anywhere, just being like any other person, enjoying the present moment. She's always loved the sea. She had to keep crossing it ahead of the usurper's knives, or so her brother said, so the transitional space of the water became her home. It made her feel small, but free as well. That's what George writes, and that's a crucial idea for Danny's story in this book, which is all about freedom, just like with John in the Wildling Camp. Danny feels small right now, stuck in the middle of a vast, empty space. She doesn't feel like a queen or a figure of prophecy, but she likes it because it makes her feel free, aware of her own choices. For a moment, there are multiple potential paths. By the end of the book, she'll feel big, like a god on the pyramid above Marine, but she's also desperately lonely by that point, and she no longer feels free. So does she really want the Iron Throne in itself? Or does she want it as a proxy for everything she's been denied, those feelings of security and peace and home? It's, it's a complicated question, isn't it, for Danny? And I think in this chapter, we see her as a figure who is projecting her own personal desires onto the Iron Throne. Oh, that sounds similar, right? Sounds like this character that we love by the name of Stannis Baratheon, who sees the Iron Throne as a substitute for the lack of love and respect he received from his brothers. And Danny here is kind of viewing the Iron Throne and becoming Queen of Westeros as a substitute for safety, that she thinks that she's going to be safe on the Iron Throne. Now, I think we can reasonably assume, given, well, just the story trajectory that Stannis is never going to sit the Iron Throne, and to him, that makes it almost an emotional crutch for him. This is why he's hmm. so miserable. He was denied the power due to him. And hmm. that's why I'm so sad all the time. But I'm going to ex have this rough exterior in order to deny the fact that I have emotions and feelings. For Danny, it's a bit different. And I do think that she will briefly get what she thinks that she wants, namely to sit the Iron Throne. But I don't think it will provide her the happiness that she's seeking. 
In fact, if the throne shows any indication, and I very much think it is, that feeling of security and peace that she projects onto the Iron Throne will end very abruptly and very violently within sight of the Iron Throne. This gets at one of the larger thematic sides of A Song of Ice and Fire, that accumulating power doesn't make sad feelings go away, and it doesn't make you safer. Again, if Danny's experiences hold true from show to book, it'll be quite the opposite. I, I, I think that conception changes later in this book, though, when she starts to find out what it means to rule a vast people. For now, though, it's sun and fun amidst a still sea. There's an air of almost innocence to this opening scene with the dragons mm. playing so childishly. Danny thinking of her childhood. She thinks that as a kid, she loved the sea so much she wanted to be a sailor. And who knows? Maybe she would have been happier that way. But Viserys, being Viserys, grabbed her hair and screamed in her face that she was a dragon, not some smelly fish. And that's the problem in a nutshell. Viserys didn't believe in freedom, not even for himself. He believed in a rigid power structure in which individuals either fit or failed. He associated his name, his very self, with that power structure and his family's place atop it. So what Danny wanted, as far as he was concerned, is irrelevant compared to the importance of maintaining the hierarchy. The wildlings believe that the state of nature is freedom. We'll get into that more in later John chapters. Viserys' animal imagery is very different. It's all about predator versus prey. Danny has a conflicted relationship to Viserys, a microcosm of her conflicted relationship to Westeros. She knows he was cruel and vicious. Yet she still can't let go of the idea that the throne was his by rights, and that even though he never reigned, he was still legitimately her king. She says so. Viserys was the king, the third of his name. <laughs> this is partially because Danny believes herself to be Viserys's heir. So if he was no true king, uh, is she a true queen? It's the same reason she resists learning anything about her father from Barristan. This is just a hot stove she doesn't want to touch in terms of what it can mean about her overall cause. But she also has these complicated feelings because she knew Viserys, unlike her father. And Big Brother wasn't cruel and vicious all the time. Danny remembers creeping into his bed, falling asleep as he told her of how much better their lives would become once they got home. This is not to excuse Viserys' many sins, the man he became by the end. It's to remind us that he was Danny's only link to home and family, so she can only access those things through the tools he gave her. It's the corruption of that dream she can't accept, even more than the loss of the throne itself, I think. If Viserys was a monster, should I still be following his plan? That's the tension here, right? She wants to be better than Viserys, but also she's the trajectory she's following was left to her by him. Viserys scorned the Dothraki. Danny assimilated much more easily with them, but now she's brought her Kalasar out onto the ocean, which they fear, but she's brought them out anyway. Isn't that kind of what Viserys was planning to do? Same question applies to Danny's dragons. On one hand, they're part of her. They're like her children. There's a real emotional bond. They're the kind of bond that Viserys forsook. On the other, they are dangerous weapons of war, the kind that uh, unstable Targaryens like Viserys could cause a lot of trouble with. Captain Grolio wanted the dragons caged up at first, but Danny shared their misery, she thinks, and she had to let them out. Again, the theme of freedom. And hey, it's working out so far. There was one small fire. There's no more rats on board. And best of all, the sailors have grown fond of the dragons. As Danny says, they think of the dragons as theirs now, with this queer, fierce pride. Compare those positive feelings to Viserys, enforcing his dragon pride with violence. You're a dragon, I'm going to scream in your face and pull your hair until you admit that you're a dragon. 
So it's clear of those siblings, one of them has a healthier relationship to the image, and it's definitely Danny. <laughs> Even as the dragons play fight, though, George never lets us forget what effective killers they are. They're just killing fish for now, but by Dance with Dragons, the book named for them, the dragons will have graduated to eating people instead. Danny wants to fly on Drogon. As Grolio says, the ship Balerion can't match her namesake. So what's it going to take to cross that gap? What will it take to make Danny's dreams a reality? Well, so we're going to find out at the end of A Dance with Dragons as she tells the swaying grass, fire and blood. That's, mm-hmm. you know, she, she's embodying those aspects of her dra- dragon personality at the end of that book. And that's uh, something that, that really is, is striking, too, coming back here to A Storm of Swords. And I, I really like these smaller scenes of Danny and her dragons gaining the loyalty of Grolio's crew, and they're crucial because they demonstrate Danny's ability to win friends and influence people. But notice something else here. It's kind of a contractual relationship in that Danny's dragons do something for Grolio's sailors and help them. They sort of take care of the rat problem on the ship, and the crew loves her and the dragons for that. This is a small taste of Danny's future self in A Storm of Swords. She is helping people and gaining loyalty in response to her help. In this, she does demonstrate how different she will be as a ruler and how she will use her assets, her dragons, to demonstrate value to her people. This contrasts with how Viserys conducted himself, focusing on the image of how Danny was supposed to be as a Targaryen. Because Targaryens are supposed to be ethereal, godlike, royal, not working with their hands like a peasant, not being non-elf-like, high-elf-like. What Danny wanted in her background was that she wanted to descend from the clouds to live a life working with her hands. And here, she demonstrates that value to these sailors, that she'll be a leader who demonstrates care for their needs. You can see why she's going to be utterly charismatic when she's doing that on a much larger scale throughout her arc in A Storm of Swords. Absolutely. You can already see that that dragons are figures of both wonder and terror. And that kind of uneasy interplay is going to define a lot of Danny herself when she gets to Slaver's Bay. All this talk of Danny's lizard kids feeds naturally into a discussion of the history of the Targaryen dragons. As with her family, all she has to go on are stories. Jorah only knows the legends. Dragons can live a thousand years and grow big enough to pluck krakens from the sea. Arston Whitebeard, as he calls himself, knows more <laughs> specifics. He says dragons can just keep growing if they have food and freedom. Back to that theme. Freedom? Danny asks. What do you mean? I mean, she's asking what it has to do with dragon growth, but the way George writes it there, it's like Danny's asking for a definition of the word freedom, which is very relevant to Slaver's Bay. Arston tells Danny about the dragon pit her ancestors built to house their dragons, who never grew as big as they might have on the outside. Jorah rolls his eyes at that, pointing out that, hey, humans don't work that way. Giants live in hovels, dwarves live in castles, just like a Tyrion. <laughs> Throughout A Storm of Swords, Jorah takes a materialist view of things, while Arston talks about more abstract concerns. When we get to the, um, the duel of Strong Belwis versus that guy in Marine. And uh, Jorah's like, it doesn't matter. Beating that one guy won't get us into the city. And Barristan's like, no, there's some intangible concerns of honor and momentum you have to take seriously. Regardless of which approach you find more convincing, the implications for Danny's story are clear from, the, for the, from the, the fable of the dragon pit. Not only is it difficult to get dragons to behave, but by doing so, you take something special away from them. They lose a little of that magic, the combined wonder and terror, the otherworldly bond that Danny forged with her children as her ancestors did. Instead, the dragons just become beasts of burden, weapons of war. 
As Danny will say in Astapor, a dragon is no slave, so she doesn't like chaining up her dragons. But if she doesn't, how will she prevent them from burning it all down? Arston admits that, like Danny vis-a-vis Westeros, he was born too late to see dragons in the flesh. He only saw the skulls in the throne room. Even before Danny learns that Arston is really Barristan Selmy, she realizes that he's a resource to cultivate. He was there. He knows what really happened. And he's one of the the, the joys of reading this chapter is realizing that ba- the, is realizing that Barristan is basically giving away the game here. Like he knows <laughs> way too much. He mm-hmm. knows way too many details to to really just be like, I saw your family at attorney once. He's kind of giving himself away, but he still doesn't give her anything useful. He holds back about her father out of fear. The truth about the Mad King would only infuriate her, and as he'll admit later, Barristan is testing Danny first to see if she's like her father. Barristan's feelings are right there in his face about the Mad King. Like I say, he's not much of a spy. As Jorah says later, Barristan is just too old and well-spoken to be Belwas's squire, so really none of this cover story makes sense. But Danny doesn't know enough to interpret his feelings. When Barristan says that Eris could be very harsh to those he thought his enemies, definitely a phrase he sneaks in there importantly, <laughs> he thought they were his enemies, Danny's only response is that, well, no one should make enemies of a king. So she puts the onus on them, on these enemies, as she did with Miri Mazdur, insisting that she brought her doom upon herself. Look what you made me do. At the end of this book, she will realize that that's not enough. Dario says that, hey, the slavers brought their doom upon themselves. But Danny insists that she can't just stop there, right? She needs to learn how to build a better world on the ashes of the old one. And she just, she just doesn't have enough information on Westeros to achieve that perspective. She doesn't know Westeros. She doesn't know those people. So her enemies are nothing more than just the pack of the usurper's dog. She can't distinguish individually between them. Yeah, and that, that's an angle that shows a complexity to Danny that despite that she's going to identify with the common man, and she does identify with them right now, she'll never stop thinking of her father's enemies as usurpers and usurpers' dogs. It, it, it's a blind spot for Danny and her personality, but it's an understandable blind spot. She never knew her father in person, as you said, and she grew up with Viserys' stories as her only touchstone for who he was. And she has Sir Jorah Mormont as her primary guide to Westeros. And as we'll find out, Maybe he doesn't have Danny's best interests at heart, maybe, and will feed that narrative about usurper's dogs, despite, you know, Jorah, weren't you at the trident on the other side, as Barristan will point out at the end of A Storm of Swords? More than that, people are inclined to think the best of their family, right? Or, or maybe not. For me, as a teenager, I thought my dad was superhuman, mostly because I, I didn't know my father beyond the six-year-old's understanding when my dad passed away. So... Danny, she did see her father in the House of the Undying, but it's not as though she had a picture of him to compare notes of whether this was her dad or not from that experience in the House of the Undying. Still, one aspect of the whole scenario is that Danny isn't asking why so many people rose up against her father. At least not here. And Barrison also isn't telling her the truth. At least not here. It's the inverse of Stannis, who spends a lot of the story wondering why everyone loved Robert and Renly and never loved him. There were Targaryens who were more popular that Barristan could talk about. He could talk about Rhaegar, but he kind of holds back there as well, not out of fear. He says that no one really knew the Prince of Dragonstone, save a special few. Moreover, Barristan cautions Danny against swallowing the stories about her brother whole. She thinks of Rhaegar as a legendary warrior. That's how Viserys described him. Barristan says that words win no battles. 
Chance, really, plays the largest role. As Jorah well knows, having one attorney with a certain lady's favor tied around his arm. Jorah himself said, every other attorney I was mediocre at best. That's what changed everything for me. And there's an extra layer to this when you know who Ar Arston Whitebeard really is. Barristan himself is a legend out of the songs, talked about in even more glowing terms than Rhaegar. But these days, he's ashamed of himself. So much so that he's posing as a mere squire, not even a knight. Life changes too quickly to invest so much of yourself in an ironclad image. As Barristan says, that's what happened to Rhaegar. He was a bookish boy until he read something that convinced him he had to be a warrior. And so he was, said Danny, delighted. She wants to believe in this kind of self-actualization. It's what she experienced with the dragon birth, becoming a different person overnight. But she's going to learn in Slaver's Bay how hard it can be to cross the gap between who you are and who you want to be. It's not always as simple as taking a new name like Barristan did. <laughs> your identity can be a cage. You know, I've, I've been struck by your, your point when we were covering season eight about how Daenerys doesn't resemble Aerys II as much as she resembles her brother Rhaegar. Well, Daenerys will not be driven to become a warrior by a book, but by the injustice that she sees, much of the way Barristan describes Rhaegar could describe Danny's arc in A Storm of Swords. Still, this character of Rhaegar becomes much more intriguing in Danny's first chapter in A Storm of Swords, and we're starting to see the dim shape of the man he actually was through someone who actually knew him. And the more we learn about him, the more intriguing he becomes to us. Oh, and we know George likes him or admires this character that he's written because he was bookish to a fault. And the knights in Eris's service, the same dudes who stood, saw, and did nothing, mocked Rhaegar for reading books like some non-fucking jock. What I think is really cool about this dynamic in the meta sense is that while George is starting to build up Rhaegar, he may have taken some inspiration from his burgeoning ideas about the Blackfire Rebellion and the backstory of A Song of Ice and Fire. If you recall from the players from the first Blackfire Rebellion, Darren the First Targaryen was bookish when Daemon Blackfire was a warrior. So Rhaegar reads as a means of threading that line between the two Targaryen archetypes from the first Blackfire Rebellion. In that, he seems like the perfect prince, the prepared prince. But as Barristan says, being the perfect warrior doesn't prevent a mishap in the tourney or possibly in facing Robert Baratheon on the Trident. Ultimately, for me, there's a, a sadness about Rhaegar deciding that he had to be a warrior instead of sticking with his books. I mean, he was a kid, after all, when he made this decision. It did end up dooming him when he faced Robert, and I can't imagine becoming a warrior made Rhaegar any happier. Will it be the same for Daenerys to leave the books Jorah Mormont gave her at, his, at her wedding to become a conqueror? I think so. And finally, the wind returns, filling their sails and the ships are on their way. But to what end? As Jorah asks, Danny is at the crossroads, right? You, you see this uh, little emphasis in this chapter when she's sitting in her cabin and George just writes in like the middle of a sentence just to let us know, actually, this is Grolio's cabin. And he gave it up to Danny in the same way that she renamed those ships. So there's this this question of as, as Danny goes forward that she's also uncovering other histories and everywhere she goes has its own history. And she she kind of feels the need to overwrite it to create her new world. And that I think has both good, positive and negative consequences. All this talk of freedom and her family has set up the stakes of her choices. And so you get this scene between Danny and Jorah in the cabin. It's a very intimately written scene, even before Jorah plants one on Danny. She's naked under the coverlet, as you were saying during the synopsis. Jiqui is naked as well. There's a lantern outside. There's a kind of like swaying, like, you know, intimate romantic light to this. But there's also a hint of danger represented by the dragon fire, because this is our first look at Dracarys. 
And that, that links up with Jorah pretty well, that hint to both romance and danger. Jorah is coming to her as both advisor and potential lover. Like the scenes with Mance Raider and Elena Terrell in the last couple chapters, this is a dense conversation, touching on personal, political, and prophetic matters. It's all about the rule of three, which has already been prominent in this chapter. Danny has three ships, she has three dragons, the three advisors come up to her on the ship in the beginning of the chapter, first Grolio, then Jorah, then Barristan, so this pattern is everywhere. Which only makes sense coming after the House of the Undying, where they described Danny's past, present, and future in terms of threes. But in this scene, Jorah isn't just pointing out that structure. He's using it to bolster his arguments. And those arguments really don't make sense. The Undying said you'd have to watch for traitors, Jorah says. And then these guys pop up? Hmm, that's real suspicious. He says he's worried about three people, right? Illyrio, Strong Belwas, and Arston Whitebeard. But then he says that Belwas and Arston alone are two of the traitors from the House of the Undying. Why? Because Danny already believes that Miri Mazdur was the other one. So Jorah has to kind of like go back on his own math and cut out Illyrio to make this fit. And that's how prophecy works, George is arguing. It's an ambiguous image you project yourself into. Like the nature of political power, just a shadow on a wall. Ding. Or like the <laughs> stories of Westeros that Danny heard from Viserys as a child. She can't corroborate them. She just has to believe in them or not. And same thing with prophecy. Jorah immediately switches from prophecy to politics by reminding Danny that Robert sent hired knives after her. So what if Belwis and Arston are more of the same? Again, this doesn't make any sense. Barristan <laughs> saved her life. Well, Jorah says, what if that was a ploy with the assassin to make Danny trust Barristan? And this is just ludicrous at this point. Danny is right to laugh in his face. That's not to say that Jorah is 100% wrong, though. He is objectively correct that Arston Whitebeard is hiding something and not hiding it very well. I think he's also right that Danny can't trust Illyrio, who wants to control her and her dragons. So, fair points. Right, fair, fair points, I guess. And Jorah might even be inadvertently correct about Barristan and Illyrio as Danny's betrayals, but, but, but not for the reasons that Jorah ascribes to them here in this chapter. But, but the larger point is how inconsistent an unwieldy prophecy is. Mm-hmm. If Barristan canonically turns cloak, see page 587 in The Winds of Winter, he will also be a betrayal for Daenerys, perhaps one framed as... For blood, if Barrison backs young Grift for having the better claim to the Iron Throne than Daenerys. Danny will likely also think that Illyrio is one of her betrayers, as she finds out that he was supporting young Grift this entire time. Jorah, and I hate to say this, really hate to say this, is right that Illyrio didn't give a shit about Viserys the person. If he wept, he wept for the plans that died with Viserys, i.e. utilizing him in some capacity. And speaking of Illyrio, let's do a very brief check-in with our friend Magister Illyrio, him of the him of the weeping for Viserys and conspiracy with Vara's fame. A- at the meta levels I was talking about before, George at this point had finally figured some parameters, let's call it that, on this whole Blackfire thing, and we start to see our first references to the Blackfires in A Storm of Swords. Additionally, before Storm was published, George began openly talking about a mercenary company called the Golden Company. Who are they? And how they would play a larger role in future volumes of A Song of Ice and Fire. So here we can establish that George likely had a young grift truly in mind with all the Blackfire references here in A Storm of Swords. What I've been kind of wondering about for several years is whether George maybe retconned Delirio's motivations for Viserys and Daenerys, where once George imagined him as an actual supporter of Danny and Viserys at some level, possibly, maybe. I wonder now whether the retcom of young Griff was at work. 
Why I think this is a possibility is the chance that in the reimagined plot that George is thinking of now for Storm, Illyrio plotted for Viserys and the Dothraki to invade Westeros ahead of Young Grift and the Golden Company. Only for Young Grift to show up to save the day. So amazing, so wonderful, so noble, so chivalrous. This is a theory I kind of go back and forth on, but I like the general gist of how it fits with the Young Griff plot here, which is going on off page in Storm and then comes, of course, on page in A Dance with Dragons. The thing is, is that if prophecy is fickle, a sword without a hilt, etc., it works on a meta level as well as the actual plot level as well. In the plot, the wrinkle in George's plotting with the prophecy is how even if you're wrong, you're right. And even if you're right, you're, you're wrong. It's a large part of why I think the three treasons Danny will know from the House of the Undying will never be like objectively revealed on page because a whole lot of people are going to fit the bill of betraying Daenerys before the end. And John at the very end, most likely. But Jorah doesn't know shit and he sucks. And it's weird that he would be describing every other potential traitor in Danny's miss. It's so weird, Emmett, isn't it? I, I, yeah, I love that idea of connecting the prophecy to the writing process itself and these like kind of advantageous uncertainties. Melisandre makes that plain later in Storm when she tells Davos, uh, if I've misread things in the flames, it's the reader's fault, not the book. <laughs> like she makes the metaphor very clear. Like George is saying, hey, if you get Aeswaf wrong, that's on you, not on right. me. I made it ambiguous <laughs> on purpose. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the irony here. And this scene on reread is so strong when you realize that when Jorah is describing all these men Danny can't trust, really he's describing himself. He's the one who's been spying on her, and he's the one who used an assassin to bind himself closer to her. That's exactly what happened with the poisoner in Vice Dothrak. As Barristan will later say, Jorah is the crow calling the raven black, which, you know, is just Westerosi for the pot calling the kettle black. Jorah's a hypocrite who tries to make himself look better by projecting his sins onto other people. We already saw that in book one. It's Ned Stark's fault I had to go into exile, not mine. So while Jorah is right that Danny has to be careful who she trusts, what he's leaving out is that he is the least trustworthy of any of them. But Danny makes a good point when she says that a ruler who trusts no one is just as bad as a ruler who trusts everyone. She's describing her father, of course, without even realizing it. He's a ruler who trusted no one. I guess I guess he trusted Jamie, maybe too much. That's the <laughs> irony of the Mad King there, the one person he did trust, the the King's Guard. So, okay, if this is Jorah's overall point that she can't trust Illyrio, where should she go instead of Pentos? Jorah, as an unrepentant slave trader, naturally argues that they set sail for Slaver's Bay. We've heard a little bit about this place before. This is where Danny and Drogo were initially headed with their Lazarine slaves at the end of Book 1. She was diverted from that path, first by Miri Mazdur, and then the journey across the Red Waste to Karth. Now we're coming full circle, but now she doesn't want to go. Everything she's heard about the cities of Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine has been, quote, dire and frightening. In contrast to her idealized view of Westeros, when she thinks, ah, when I set foot on that shore, it'll be the most beautiful place in the world, I just know it. So why should she abandon heaven to descend into hell? Because, Jorah says, Hell is where they forge armies, specifically the Unsullied, a fighting force that will become central to Danny's story. Danny has seen individual Unsullied as household guards in the Free Cities. As she will learn at Astapor, the slavers no longer sell them as individuals, only in hundreds and thousands to maintain cohesion, I guess is how they'd think about it. And we'll have a lot more to say about the hellishness of Astapor when we get there. I mentioned the unit cohesion of the Unsullied, because that's what Jorah's story is about. They're legend, like those of the dragons. While the dragons embody freedom, the unsullied exemplify discipline. 
against thousands of charging Dothraki schemers, they against thousands of charging Dothraki screamers, they stood firm. The Dothraki were more motivated by pride than discipline, as John thinks in the Wildling camp. So instead of flanking their infantry opponents, the Dothraki tried to just run them down. But as long as the Unsullied held, there was no getting past their spears and shields, and the Dothraki died by the thousands, over 10,000. In truth, and I didn't really remember this until I came back on reread, the Unsullied technically lost a higher percentage of troops, 80% of their fighting force as opposed to the Dothraki's uh, 66%. (laughs) But really, no fighting force should be effective at that point, and the Unsullied still were which is why the Dothraki accepted defeat. And Danny knows what a big deal it was for them to cut off their braids and bells and give them up to the Unsullied. Oh, that's the ultimate sign of respect. We thought you were nothing but cannon fodder. We thought we would just ride over you into the city. Turns out you're better warriors than we are. That legacy has lasted. They still carry braided spears and cohort to remind them of the immovable object that held back an irresistible force. So last week, we, we talked about the potential historical for Mance Raider and the Wildlings as seen through the 4th century CE Goths and Alaric. And now I get to inflict some more of this history shit on you all with talking about how George is remixing history with a story uh, very clearly, let's say, lifted from the Spartan defense of Thermopylae from the 5th century BCE. The Spartan military, like the militaries of most Greek city-states, were heavily armored spear infantry known as hoplites, or hoplites in Greek, and fought shoulder-to-shoulder with their fellow soldiers in what's known as a phalanx formation. At Thermopylae, the Spartans under King Leonidas held a defense against the Persians under Xerxes, who had a mixed force comprised mostly of light infantry and cavalry. Now, the, the details of the Battle of Thermopylae and the Battle of Cohort do differ, as the Spartans defended a narrow pass while the Unsullied were arrayed outside of the city gates. The Unsullied, though, if you take another historical inspiration, raising their shields over their heads from Dothraki arrows is, is a bit reminiscent of the much-vaunted but historically overstated Roman Testudo formation. It's not like people in the past didn't know that raising your shield over your head from falling arrows was right? a good idea. Come on, <laughs> motherfuckers, come on. Even I would figure that out. Right. Oh, yeah, if there's something coming from above me, I should put my yes, shield yes. up to... Yeah. A little wily yes. coated with the umbrella. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. If it's a shield. Um... But the thing is, is that discipline, as Danny will be told later, is mother's milk for the Unsullied, and their ability to fight as a disciplined unit not moving from the battlefield until death or victory is the type of fighting force that Daenerys will need for her future enemies in Slaver's Bay, Essos, Westeros, and the North, ultimately. And they will be instrumental in giving her the agency so long denied to her as well. Isn't that the great irony here? That's what Jorah is saying. If you want to be free, you want to be independent, you need slaves. That's how you get out from under Illyrio's thumb, says Jorah. Go to him with an army at your back. Danny doesn't raise any moral objections yet because she hasn't seen Astapor in person. She is a more practical problem. How the fuck do we pay for this? The wealth of Karth slipped through Danny's fingers. Jorah can only hope they make money as a sideshow again in Slaver's Bay. And if they don't, he says, maybe we can barter with Illyrio's goods. Jorah frames this as a test of Illyrio's loyalty and the loyalties of those he sent. If the cheesemonger won't put his wealth at your disposal, if his servants won't change course with you, then they're not your friends. They're just interested in being in charge. Really, though, this is Jorah testing his own power. Can I get away with this? Can I get you to turn against other people on your side? Well, Danny agrees. And she's so excited, she forgets herself, rising naked in front of him. She explains her plans as she dresses, only to turn right into his arms. 
Danny has known that Jorah is into her since the City of Bones. In this conversation, she tells herself not to be angry at him because he does all he does for love. Yet his kiss still comes as such a shock to her. It's a total defiance of their roles as queen and knight. Suddenly Jorah has elevated himself to her consort as well as her guardian. And there is a giddy thrill to it for her because of the intimacy. She hasn't been close with someone like this since Drogo died. So her mouth opens and then she pulls back, covering herself up lest her nipples betray her. She doesn't want to be attracted to Jorah, and she definitely doesn't want to reconsider their relationship to the extent that he does. He's already calling her Daenerys. She has to remind him to call her Your Grace. Ah, but he wants to be one of the three heads of the dragon. You can take husbands, Danny. Make me one of them, and I will be true to you. This is where all the chapter's different threads, personal, political, prophetic, all come together. Even as Jorah speaks romantic words out of the songs and stories, I should have kissed you before, you were made to be kissed, he's also angling for his own promotion and saying that putting him in charge would mark the fulfillment of her destiny. A little problem with that argument, as you may have noticed if you know how to count to three, <laughs> how would Jorah handle the other head of the dragon, the other husband Danny's supposed to have? Not well at all from what we've seen here. As Danny will tell Jorah later in the book, she knows why he's pushing all other men away from her. It's so she won't listen to anyone else, and he'll have no rivals for her affection. So the grand designs of prophecy and the whole Targaryen restoration cause, that means nothing more to Jorah than a fig leaf for his jealous fears and desires. The gods demand we hook up, is basically what he's saying to her here. Yet as much as I mock him for that, is there really any other way to approach prophetic visions? You, you kind of just have to guess and hope you're right. I mean, we can say as readers, oh, a lot of Danny's story is pointing towards John. He's the fulfillment of a lot of these prophecies. But it's not like Danny's going to meet John and then a little light bulb is going to go <laughs> off and like Quaith is going to say, you're good, you found him. Everything's fine now. It's never going to be that clear, as you were saying about the other uh, three treasons. I think it's that's deliberate and I totally agree. Mm -hmm. We're all part of patterns that we can't quite grasp. Paranoia is a fact of life, even if you never had sorcerers spell out your destiny in riddles. Danny doesn't know the truth behind the dragon must have three heads any more than Jorah does. Her choices are her own, for better or worse. Mm. And I think that moment when Daenerys believes that all signs of destiny are pointing her in one direction, that the Unsullied are the way that she will gain her throne, are all undercut by Slave Bear making his move. In a way, though, that same sense of destiny that Danny felt in that moment was what Jorah Mormont must have felt, too. That, in no fucking way, justifies a 40-something dude making out with a 14-year-old Daenerys. I mean, come on. Jorah pulls a little finger from a Game of Thrones with Sansa in this moment, as Danny notes that his mouth tastes sweet. Was Jorah eating some mint before coming into this room with Danny? Much, maybe, possibly. I mean, I think that's what Jorah wants us. Uh, Jorah, that's what that's what George wants us to potentially remember from a Game of Thrones. But that destiny feeling for Jorah must have been strong. Not so sadly, destiny proves just as fickle as prophecy for Jorah, as this moment will not last. As Danny will spend as much time as possible not being alone with the creep before exiling him for being a treasonous for being the treasonous git that he is. For now, though, everyone is reasonably happy or very conflicted, the, the two genders, and that's an interesting <laughs> note to leave Danny on in her first chapter. The start of the chapter finds Danny with her chill, happy vibes, enjoying the sea and the lightness of existence away from the land. 
Most of the rest of her arc, though, will find her on on blood-soaked land, on blood-soaked soil, all airy lightness gone. But if you do recall from A Dance with Dragons, there will be a moment towards the end of that book when she'll take to the skies and and experience that same lightness, that same airy feeling, literally in this case, if only for an instant. And that takes us right into foreshadowing and groundwork, because, yeah, in A Dance with Dragons... Danny will lock her dragons away, just like Arston talks about her ancestors doing, except Drogon. Instead, she will ride him away from Daznak's pit, as she thinks about doing in this chapter. So, like you were saying earlier in the episode about about uh, so many through lines being set up in this chapter, it's not even just for Storm, even stuff in A Dance with Dragon, those basic, basic tensions that will define her story there, I think you can already see them here. Yeah, and, and I do think that's it's such a... a, a fascinating dynamic in a dance with dragons that does get spelled out here in storm of swords that you either have to chain your dragons or ride them you have to either prevent you have to chain your violent side or you have to embrace it fully or at least that's the dynamic that danny kind of comes to the realization of at the end of a dance with dragons that she has to either choose peace or war that there's no middle ground she has to make a very hard choice between two binary between a between a binary and i think that's it's it's, it's a tough choice, and it's one of the most tragic, sad moments in A Song of Ice and Fire. And at the same time, there is a feeling of triumph, too, because we are finally getting out of Marine, as most readers will feel like. But I think it's uh, it's, it's one that we may look back when we get to the Winds of Winter and, and the Dream of Spring and be like, uh, maybe not so triumphant after all. So dragons like to attack from above, as as Danny says, as she observes her dragons doing the same thing in the waters of, of in, in the in the ocean here. And that is something that Krasny's Monaklos and the Astapori will discover just a few chapters hence when, yes, Drogon rises to the sky and Krasny's trying to pull him down with his chain and, of course, belches dragonfire when Daenerys calls for Dr- Dracarys uh, on, on, on the Astapori. Sure, I think as as other people have said, uh, George may have borrowed that from uh, from fighter pilots, who you know the, the the advantage of attacking from above. And I think there's also just something in the idea that it makes the dragons look as though they're kind of emerging from the sun, you know, or emerging from the sky. There was that that legend in book one about about the uh, the moon being an egg that cracked and, and let go of the dragons. And when Drogon descends first at Astapor and then at Daznak's pit, it does feel like that, like he's being kind of birthed from the sky. And it's just it's very dramatic. It's wonderful. Speaking mm-hmm. of uh, Dragonfire, George has some great setup work here where he has this, this little moment where Danny's teaching the dragons how to set their own, how to char their own food with this Dracarys. Dracarys. And George says, Dracarys, what's that? And Danny explains, well, that's Valyrian for Dragonfire. And then you don't <laughs> have to mention it again until the exact moment she unleashes Drogon on the slavers. And that's great because you need to set it up so we know what Dracarys means in the moment. But you don't want to set it up too much that we can see it coming. And I think that's, that's the perfect balance. What I kind of wonder is like whether George is doing, as he does, he often rewrites the this, this story. So he realizes that he has to set up Dracarys. And I wonder if that he came back to this chapter and wrote that part about Dracarys in, about how Danny figures out. Because he realizes like, yeah, I I really can't just have Danny's be say, yell out, ah, Dracarys. And you're like, oh, that came out of nowhere. So here he's doing the the work to kind of set the foundation up for for Danny to to call out Dracarys at, at Astapor, which is one of those thrilling moments in in, in a Storm of Swords, one of the most thrilling moments in a, in all of the story. Uh, speaking of burning people, uh, Danny says that Illyrio values his life more than gold, pointing out that she burned one of her former betrayers, that is Miriam's door, before. 
What I think George is communicating here very strongly is that Danny is going to burn Illyrio for betraying her via Young Grift. Again, we did talk about how George had finally come onto the idea of the Black Fires, likely as foundation for the fact that Young Grift himself descends from the Black Fires. And here, foreshadowing that Danny is going to burn Illyrio for betraying her, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think George is laying the groundwork for that. We keep Illyria is one of those characters who is mentioned in way more chapters than he appears. I think George never wants us to forget about him and his kind of puppet master role in first Danny's story and then Young Griff's. And yeah, I think there will be definitely an immensely emotional payoff to their story because uh, Danny uh, trusts Illyria or you know trusts Illyria to have done right by her and Viserys, and that betrayal, I think, um, will be set up for all the betrayals she feels once she, once she gets to Westeros proper. Mm-hmm. So Danny says her Dothraki followers who, who hate sailing, hate being on the ship, he, she says, oh, they're acting like they're sailing to hell. We're just sailing to Pentos. As it turns out, they're the ones who are right, because when we get to Astapor, George repeatedly compares that city to hell. So the, the Dothraki were more right than they knew. They are, they are indeed going to hell. Mm, as you were talking about uh, in our mini-sode for our small council and High Lord and High Lady patrons, yes, even had the smell of brimstone in Astapor. So that imagery of Astapor being hellish is intentional on George's part. It's it's not a subtle metaphor, what, what Astapor represents in, in the story. And I think it's all for the better that that is the case. So there are some aspects of Astapor that we'll get into at a, at a later date, let's say, about uh, how that's... There, there's a there's a lack of... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll save all those thoughts for, for later later Danny chapters in A Storm of Swords. And finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, wouldn't you know it, but at the Battle of Fire in the Winds of Winter, Barristan Selmy is leading a cavalry charge against the Yunkish and wrecking their ship, and he turns around just to see the Unsullied are marching out of the gates of the city of Marine to form up in battle order. And I have to think that the Yunkai and those and the ghosts of those dead Dothraki are all shitting themselves, thinking that, oh my god, it's happening again. It's a repeat of the Battle of Kohor. Yep, exactly. No, I love that. That's the uh, so similar to when Barristan compares it um, to uh, to the Blackfire Rebellion, mm-hmm. and he says, "Oh, it's just like Baylor and Mycar." I love that. You know, the, the even the characters swept up in battle can recognize their similarities to a previous battle, especially Barristan. So yeah, that's 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 some viscerally exciting stuff. It's great. Mm-hmm. So uh, moving into our theory and discussion portion of the episode, there is this intriguing little nugget that comes up in the backstory here when Barristan is talking to Danny about Rhaegar and says that Rhaegar was very bookish until one day it seems like he read something that changed his life. And he went out to Willem Derry and says, I, it's, it seems I must be a warrior, which is a very intriguing phrase. So I want to talk a little bit about what it is that Rhaegar might have read and what it is he might have, he might have taken away from it. And a lot of what we know about Rhaegar's interest in this... Uh, is related to Maester Aemon, because Maester Aemon talks in A Feast for Crows about being in touch with Rhaegar, and he says that Rhaegar believed himself to be the prince that was promised, but later on he came to believe it was his son, and that's what we saw in The House of the Undying, was Rhaegar declaring it his son. So do you think it's it's probably fair to say that this was the first phase of that, right? When Rhaegar thought the signs were pointing to him? I think you're right, and, and I think this is something that's really interesting about Targaryens. Now, I'm not a, a big Targaryen stan, as you could probably tell. I think a lot of the Targaryens were worthless pieces of shit, and I don't like them. But I, <laughs> was that too overstated? I don't know. But but I do think the the one interesting aspect of the Targaryens is this sense of them being the heroes that are going to save the world. And there was an intriguing bit from when George R. R. Martin was doing his promotional tour for Fire and Blood Volume One, 
where he references a theory that Aegon I, Targaryen, Aegon the Conqueror, that is, believed that he had a destined role to save Westeros or save the world from the White Walkers and from the others. And I think that's led a lot of fans to think that there's a, not just that, but I think there a lot of fans think that Rhaegar had a similar revelation or realization mm-hmm. about himself, that he was destined to be this prophetic figure of destiny that he had to save the world until, as you said, Danny observed in the House of the Undying that Rhaegar seemed to come to the realization that it wasn't him after all, that it was probably his son, Aegon, or John, or or someone is going to be here to save the world. But I am curious about something. So they, they do say in this chapter, or Barristan says, or Arston says, that Rhaegar read scrolls or books that led him to this conclusion. And what possible books or scrolls did Rhaegar read to to come to this conclusion that he was the destined prophetic figure to save the world and what and henceforth what what led him to believe that it was his son who was that prophesied destined figure well thinking about Amon and thinking about the uh, the myths surrounding the prince that was promised and thinking about Rhaegar there is that that book that that Amon makes sure to leave a copy of for John when he departs the wall in feast slash dance and Aemon leaves behind the Jade Compendium for John, which includes the uh, legends about Azor High fighting a monster. And uh, we've talked before about whether or not Aemon knows that John is Rhaegar's son. I think there's there's evidence for and against. But I th- I think that's that's suggestive that maybe it was a book, maybe that was the book Rhaegar read, or a book like mm-hmm. it, because Aemon was in contact with Rhaegar about these legends about how they might apply to to present day people. So maybe it's possible that that's that's what Rhaegar read. The signs of Azor Ahai and his overall arc, and he thought they pointed to him and said, "Oh, I turns out I got to do that. I got. I'm going to have to fight a monster with my fiery sword one day. Better, better learn how to be a be a warrior." And that's. I always like that because it's such a, it's so literal, and like I get hmm. why someone would think that way, but it's also like, man, like, I, I see why. Of course, Ray, like as maybe as Rhaegar developed, he later changed his mind about exactly what that was about. We know it was shifted to his son. Maybe he had some idea in mind for his son by Lyanna as well. But like that's there's a, there's a simplicity to it to Rago's reaction that is touching, like he doesn't like flinch right. This is my duty. I have to do it. But it's also kind of scary. And it's like wow, dude, you read one thing, and it's like your whole <laughs> life is gonna change. Like I get the I get the kind of romantic appeal to that. But it's like wow, are you that fickle? Are you that changeable? Like man, what if you read a different book that said you should destroy the entire world? Would you believe that too? Like that's that's the you know that's that's the flipped coin of the Targaryens, and I think it applies to anyone who tries to handle that 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 sword without a hilt. Um, I, I think of Azor Ahai, and there's a lot of long, tedious debates about whether Azor Ahai and the prince that were, was promised are the same person. I think for the for the point for the terms of the story, they basically are. They they fulfill the same kind of monomyth function. And Azor Ahai specifically is referred to as the Warrior of Light. So I do wonder if Rhaegar read something in mind of in, in that vein and suggested that that he would have to to wield a sword and and be manly. So um, I you know I doubt we'll ever get it a hundred percent confirmed, but I do think it's it's in that vein, and I do think on reread we are supposed to make the connection to Aemon and then to John. I think you're right, and 
you know, as if you folks are listening to the, these episodes, we do do a um, every every time we do record these episodes, we have a a uh, a weekly live stream where we do these episodes. And uh, Caitlin K brings up a really interesting point in which she says it would be really interesting if Rhaegar started having dreams and then began writing to Amon, which is how Rhaegar quote unquote fact checked himself. Mm. What I think is is really interesting is that it kind of like joins kind of our two ideas together in that. Rhaegar may have had these dragon dreams, which is something that Targaryens have experienced from Daenys the Dreamer and Aenar to potentially Aegon I himself, Daenerys, as we find out. And we don't have a confirmation that Rhaegar had dragon dreams, but I think it's it's likely and potential that, that this was something that, that occurred and that led Rhaegar to realize that he had to become a warrior. But first he had to check with Aemon Targaryen up at the wall, the smartest oldest, wisest Targaryen that, that's ever lived, potentially. I don't, I don't, I don't know. That, uh, and and Rhaegar and Aemon pointed him to a couple of these books. I think I love your idea that the Jade Compendium might have been one of those books that he read. Um, I, I also think there's there's a possibility that uh, there, there's a theory that's been mentioned that that Rhaegar got in touch with the Ghost of High Heart, that prophetic figure who mm-hmm. uh, who Arya meets later in A Storm of Swords, that she might have given Rhaegar some of the um, some information as we find out that she loves songs and uh, as asks uh, as Thomas Sevens. To, to sing to her playing his harp, which some some fans, and I'm, I'm among them, believe was demonstrates that Rhaegar hmm. might have been the person who was playing the harp and singing to her back in the day, back in the day in exchange for for the songs because prophecies in exchange for songs is the is the mode of commerce for for that. So I think there's a lot of different ways that Rhaegar may have gotten this notion that he had to become a warrior. And I think what I'm really f- curious about is whether George will will talk about why Rhaegar changed his mind, why he eventually came to realize that or realize in quotation marks that he wasn't the figure who was going to be Azor Ahai or the prince that was promised or the last hero or any of these prophesied figures from from the Song of Ice and Fire backstory and what drove him to the realization that it was his son who was that figure. I, I, I'm i curious uh, about this and I think it's it's something that I hope George explores more in The Winds of Winter and I think it'll be a, a, a thrilling dynamic that we'll uh, hopefully get to uh, unpack more in the story and of course here in this podcast. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Daenerys 1. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, and anywhere and everywhere where you find your podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Brendabeefish. I was about to say WordPress, Brendabeefish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quantum, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbright, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, 
Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatark Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isle, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, and Sir Andrew of H-Town. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies. We really appreciate your support. Absolutely. Thank you all so very, very much for your support. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for A Storm of Swords Davos 2, in which everyone at this point, really, folks, everyone should just listen to Salador San, because he is not wrong. He don't miss. If only everyone listened to that cheerful old pirate, we'd be in much better shape. So yes, the next chapter in The Storm of Swords is Bran 1, but Bran 1 is a pretty slim chapter. We're going to be combining it with Bran 2 when we get to Bran 2 later on in Storm of Swords, so we're skipping over it for right now, right into Davos 2. So, uh, you know, you know me, I'm all about the Davos chapter, so we're going to have a great time. <laughs> I can't wait to do that chapter with you, sir. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of you who watched this live stream. Thank you, of course, to our patron for, patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next time for A Storm of Swords, Davos 2.